If we'd please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And we're going to take a a break for a couple of weeks, excuse me, in our study of 1 Corinthians. So this week we're going to be looking at a Christmas story, a well-known story, an infancy story from the Gospel. And then, uh, as I had mentioned, we will be having an ordination in two weeks, and then we're going to be having uh, former Pastor Richard Smith coming here on the 16th. So we will be uh, uh, picking up with 1 Corinthians again, in um, starting in chapter 8 on the 23rd of January, Lord willing. So today we're looking at this well-known Christmas passage. Here now, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Here now the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you, for from you have come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest upon the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for your anointing on the reading and the preaching of your word. Father, I need your Holy Spirit to preach your words with truth and clarity and power. And Father, each one of us needs your Holy Spirit to to open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you. And Father, I pray that each one of us will have an encounter with you 
And Father, that we will see you, each one of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, about 16 years ago, when I was training to be a ruling elder in my church, it was the first time that I had ever studied the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our church's doctrinal standards. And there was a particular section that really challenged my theological understanding about the nature of salvation. And it's not what you would expect. It wasn't the the sections on election. The specific section that troubled me was chapter 25, verse 2, which was about the visible church. And I'm going to read that section to you. It says, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all of those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And the part that that really troubled me was this last clause that said, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And this clashed with a, a, a deeply held theological conviction that I now understand was not biblical. Like many Christians, I found the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, I found this particularly troubling. The idea that so many of my non-Christian friends, people who I dearly loved, people who were good moral people, better people than, than I, the idea that they would be eternally lost unless they explicitly professed faith in Christ as he's presented in the Bible. This idea was very distressing for me. And also like many new Christians, I read many C.S. Lewis books. I devoured many of his books. And in Lewis's writings, I discovered a speculation that he held, one that I now know does not have biblical support. But at the time, this, this speculation alleviated my distress of the eternal consequences of my non-Christian friends. See, Lewis, like me, was aware of the implications of John 14:6, which I recently preached on Wednesday. And where Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Lewis's speculation, I think it was in the book Mere Christianity, was that the only way of salvation is through Jesus. He, he, he definitely says that's what Scripture clearly teaches. But here's a speculation. He says, but that doesn't mean that the person being saved through Jesus must use the name Jesus. So Lewis, Lewis thought that you could be saved by Jesus and not even know Jesus. And he fleshes this idea out in the, in the concluding book of his Chronicles of Narnia series. This is the, the last battle. And there's a character in the last battle called Emeth. And if you're familiar with, Emeth is a, a Colormine. And the Colormines are the bad guys. They worship the Colormine god, which is Tash. And we find out Tash is a demon. And, and the Colormines are really a not-so-veiled attempt of, of Lewis to basically describe the Muslims. But by their descriptions and their customs, it seems very clear that these are the Muslim people. And in the book, Emeth actually ends up at the end of the book in heaven, where he sees Aslan. And Aslan is the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And at this point, Emeth realizes that Aslan, who all his life he regarded as a false god, all his life he, he blasphemed and opposed, he realizes now that Aslan is the true God. And he realizes that all his life he was wrong. And Emeth fully expects judgment. But to his complete surprise, 
Aslan accepts Emeth and welcomes him into heaven. And, and Aslan says to him that the, the devotion that Emeth showed to Tash was really shown toward Aslan. See, Emeth had attributed to Tash diverse virtues and qualities, such as goodness and mercy, that were in fact diametrically opposed to the demon Tash and were actually the attributes of Aslan himself. So Emeth's worship of these attributes in Tash was counted as devotion to Aslan. Now you can understand the attractiveness of the speculation. Now I, not need, I did not need to worry about my non-Christian friends. They, they didn't need to become Christian. Uh, they didn't need to study the Bible. They didn't need to learn about God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. They were okay the way they were. They were saved by Jesus, even though they didn't know his name, because they used a different name. They could call him Allah. They could call him Buddha or Vishnu. Or they could name him Jesus, but have an unbiblical definition of Jesus, such as the Gnostics or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses and others. I now understand the error of the speculation and how it really completely contradicts the teaching of the Bible. And I'm thankful for the clear teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith and also the unequivocal words of my pastor when I, when I challenged him on this. He said to me, he says, Lewis has very many good insights about Christianity, but on this point, Lewis is dead wrong. And I'm thankful for that clear, unambiguous teaching that he gave me. Because if Lewis's speculation is correct, there would really be no urgency for us to preach the gospel. No urgency to share the good news of Jesus. It really has, a, 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 all you would need is a vague understanding, a vague appreciation of God's attributes. That would be all be needed for salvation. But that's not what we see. See, the Bible is very specific. There is specific content, content that must be known, understood, believed, embraced, and relied upon for salvation. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us very specific content about the Jewish Messiah, about Jesus Christ, about he's a specific person. He lives in a specific place in a specific time. He did specific miracles. He died in a specific place in time and manner. He was suffered under... Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried, as we say in the Creed. And on the third day, he truly rose bodily from the dead. This is real content that must be accepted, must be believed for salvation. And the passage that we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 2, it gives us specific theological content about Jesus, about his people, about his mission, and about the opposition that he faced. So chapter 2 gives us a really nice and condensed form of the teachings that we see throughout the New Testament. So what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to see how Jesus fulfills the role of Israel, how Jesus is the true Israel. And next we're going to see how the people of God are no longer limited to the Jewish people, but the gospel goes out to the whole world, to all nations, to all people. They are grafted into the true Israel. And lastly, we're going to see that there is opposition. There is always opposition. See, the devil hates God, and he hates the people of God. And the false church is fine, but there will always be opposition and persecution to the true people of God, to the true Israel. So we know the story. Shortly after Jesus is born, while they are still in Bethlehem, we don't know how long after, it could be a couple of weeks, months, even, even a few years, Jesus is visited by wise men from the east. And these men are Gentiles. They are most likely from Mesopotamia. 
And this is the area of ancient Babylon. And it's speculated that these men were worshipers, true worshipers of Yahweh. And their position as wise men, or magi, or astrologers, this was similar to the position that Daniel held hundreds of years earlier during his exile in Babylon. And these men, I believe, were the spiritual descendants of Daniel and his companions. And through their astrology, and we don't exactly know what this looks like, they saw this star rising from the east, the wise men are alerted to the birth of the one who they identify as the king of the Jews. So they go to Herod. This is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a, a political operative. He was not Jewish. He was considered the king of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish. He was Idumean, which was the ancient Edomites. And if you remember from your Bible, the Edomites were descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. So Herod was not Jewish at all. But Herod had political clout, clout with the Romans, and the Romans were the real power in this area. And they installed him as a puppet king. Now, history tells us that Herod was brutal and he was insanely paranoid. He, he actually was so paranoid that he had several of his wives and sons murdered because he perceived them to be a threat. So when these wise men, these foreign dignitaries come to Herod searching for a king, a king of the Jews, this illegitimate king, Herod, is panicked. And verse 3 tells us, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. See, Herod was troubled because he saw this newborn baby as a threat. And the rest of Jerusalem was troubled because when Herod is troubled, people die. But Herod has something that the wise men do not have. He had chief priests. He had scribes. And more importantly, these men had the scriptures, the holy scriptures. They were students of the scriptures. And they had the supernatural sign of the star. Again, we don't know exactly what it was. There's different speculations. Was it a supernova? Was it just something in the constellation? We don't really know. and It doesn't matter. But they understood this supernatural revelation. And it alerted them to the time of the Christ's birth. But they needed scripture to tell him what city he was prophesied to be born. So looking to the prophet Micah, they discover that it's Bethlehem. Out of Bethlehem will the ruler come, the shepherd of the people of Israel. And Herod then sends the wise men to Bethlehem to find the, the king of the Jews. And he wants them then to report back to him. And he says, so that I too may worship him. But really what he wanted to do was to kill him once he found out where they were. So the wise men travel to Bethlehem where they find Jesus. The star rises, shows the exact house where he is. And they go and they find Jesus and they worship Jesus. But they're also warned. They're warned in a, in a dream not to return to Herod. So not only are the wise men warned in a dream not to return to Herod, but also an angel appears to Joseph in a dream to warn him about Herod. And Joseph is, is instructed to flee, to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous plan. And then in the last part of the reading, we see really the, the wicked brutality of Herod. Since the wise men didn't come back to him to tell him how to find Jesus, Herod says, I'm just going to kill all of them. I'm going to kill all the baby boys, anyone who could be a potential threat to me. I mean, you, you can see the evil is a shotgun approach. Just kill every child under, under two and hope that I'll get the right one. You see, again, the, the evil of this account. And throughout this account, we see very specific actions and references in prophecy. So let's first look at this prophecy about Jesus being called out of Egypt. We see this in verse 15 where it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And this is reference to our Old Testament reading that Hal read for us in, in Hosea 11. 
But when you read through it, I don't know if you listened to it, but it's very clear that this passage is not talking about Jesus. It's not a prophecy about Jesus. In fact, the first verse of Hosea 11 makes it exactly clear who is called out of Egypt. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So this chapter is about Israel, the nation Israel, God's people. And if you remember, Israel went into Egypt for protection. This was when Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, and there was a famine, and they had to go in there to get to, because, because the, the world was going to starve. And Israel was, at this time, really just a family. It was just Jacob's extended family. There were only 70 members of this family. And God had used Joseph, really, to save Egypt and to save the surrounding people and to save Jacob's family during this famine. But the people of Israel spent 400 years in Egypt. And by the end, they are in slavery. And they, they're being treated brutally by their Egyptian taskmasters. And they cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And he hears them. He answers them. Through Moses, he draws them. He brings them out of Egypt, out of Israel. He calls Israel his son out of Egypt. But Matthew applies 11.1 to Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So what Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us is that Jesus is the greater Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. So Israel was a people specifically set apart for the Lord. They were to be separate from those who did not know God. And they were to show the world God, to show what God was like. They were to be holy as their God was holy. Leviticus 11.45, God says, For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. But Israel was not holy. Hosea 1, 11, 2, the, the very next verse from the one that Matthew quotes says, the more they were called, that is called by God, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. See, God's special people that he called out, those that he loved and provided for, those that he protected and defended, those that he brought out of Egypt and delivered from the yoke of oppression, these same people abandoned him. They abandoned their God. They did not want to be separate. They wanted to be like everyone else. They worshipped the worthless idols just like everyone else. But now, now the true Israel has come. Now the Messiah was born. And he would do what others had failed to do. He showed the world God. He would be holy. He would be separate. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Israel. Jesus succeeds where all those who went before him had failed. And Jesus, the true Israel, expands the covenant people from just ethnic Israel, the descendants of Jacob, to all the world, to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And we see here a foretaste of what is later made explicit in the book of Acts, what we had as our New Testament reading, Peter's vision of this sheet coming down with showing clean and unclean animals and saying that now all are clean, and the conversion of Cornelius, now showing that Gentiles are now part of God's people. And this expansion of, of God's covenant to be both Jew and Gentile is foreshadowed in the worship of the wise men. And a couple of important points to note about the worship of these Gentile wise men. First, notice, God initiated the searching. We see this in verse 2, where they were following a supernatural star that God had sent to them 
to tell them about the time of Messiah's birth. And this star then directed them to the very house where the Messiah was. It was God who took the initiative, not them. They were waiting, they were looking, but God took the initiative. And we must understand that the concept of the seeker-sensitive church, this is a misnomer, because there are no seekers. There are no seekers. God is the only seeker. And God seeks and searches for the lost. And then he draws himself to them. And many, you may have heard, that there are many stories that missionaries will tell, especially among the Muslims, about Muslims having these dreams, dreams about Jesus. And, and, and they draw them to Jesus. and They go to missionaries and say, I need to learn about this one that I had a dream about. And these dreams are part of how God draws them. The dreams themselves do not save the Muslims. They still need to hear the gospel. They still need to put their faith in Christ. But it's part of the process that draws them to the person of Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see, they're searching for the Jewish Messiah. Again, in verse 2, they're searching for the king of the Jews. They're not searching for their own God, a God of their own making. They're searching for the God, a God who is separate from them. See, this is so different from what C.S. Lewis's speculation about the pagan who faithfully worships his own God, the false God, unknowingly worshiping the true God. See, God is not ambiguous. God is very specific. And he tells us about his holy character. His word is not a, a, an ambiguous myth. It is tied to real people in real places and real events. See, we like an ambiguous God. We like ambiguity because it allows us to find God the way we want him to be. We see this in, in so-called in churches that, that have an amorphous God. It allows them to make God in their own image. But only God, the only God is capable of saving them is the true God. Not defined by us, not defined by our own imagination, but defined by Scripture. Scripture alone. Which brings us to the third observation. Third observation is they did not turn to philosophy. They did not turn to logic. They did not turn to rhetoric or pagan writing, sacred writings, to find the location of the true God. The answer was found in Scripture, in Scripture alone. It was found in God's inerrant holy word. The only way that they could know that Christ was born in Bethlehem was if God told them. And he did. He told them through the prophet Micah, which was quoted in verse 6 of this passage. So it's very important that we realize that God speaks through Scripture. The last thing we want to notice about the Gentile wise men is that they worship Christ. They worship the real biblical Christ. Not a Christ that they made up, the Christ of the Bible. We see this in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped the biblical Christ. Not a, not a construct. They didn't just pick any baby and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm attributing the, the attributes of the baby Christ to this baby. No. They were worshipping the true Christ. And you see, the problem with Lewis's speculation that pagans worship Christ through worshiping their own gods, first of all, it's clearly contrary to what the teaching of Scripture, but this error leads to complacency. It alleviates our concerns for our lost loved ones and gives us a false sense of security for them, all the while keeping us from giving them the thing that they need most, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we desperately want Lewis to be right, because that means we don't need to be the bad guys. We don't need to fight. We don't need to tell anyone that they are wrong. We don't need to worry about thinking them, them thinking that we're narrow-minded, bigoted. 
We just want to live and let live. We, the, the, there's no need to evangelize or, or, or proclaim the gospel. But the uh, exclusivity of Christ and his claims, the exclusivity of the gospel divides people. <clears throat> it brings opposition because we say that there is only one way to God. And people do not like to hear that. And we would rather get along with everyone. And this brings us to our last point. For God's people, for the true Israel, for those who seek to be faithful to God and his word, we will always, always face opposition. And the reason for this is that our natural disposition as fallen sinners is hatred of God. And some people argue, say, no, I don't hate God, I just hate you narrow-minded Christians. Well, we're narrow-minded because we're saying what the Bible says. They hate the God of the Bible. Believe me, I, if it was up to me, I would say God loves everyone. But that's not up to me. It's what the Bible says. And we hate God because we want to be God. We do not want to submit to anyone. We don't want anyone to tell us that we are sinners. We don't want anyone to tell us that we need to repent, that we need to change. And this opposition is most clearly seen in this passage in the murderous hatred shown by Herod in this passage. Herod hated God. And because of that, he hated all those who were God's people. So if we're faithful to God, we will face opposition. Now, of course, we should be winsome. We should not try to be contentious. We should be loving and kind to all people. But even if we are, sadly, there are some, some people, none of this will matter if we speak God's prophetic truth. See, the fallen world hates the truth, especially if the truth tells them they need to repent of the sin that they love. They hate the gospel because it highlights their weakness. It highlights their sinfulness. It highlights their inability to save themselves and says that they must repent and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone by faith. And unless the Holy Spirit quickens the heart of the lost and makes them alive to receive the good news of the gospel, to receive the grace of repentance that leads to faith in Christ, they will hate the gospel and they will oppose those who proclaim the gospel, no matter how winsome we may be. But don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. God is sovereign. And he will give us the grace to withstand the opposition and to remain faithful. And our faithful, loving proclamation and example of, of God's truth will never, will never be in vain. It will always accomplish God's purpose. And it will, Lord willing, be the means that the Lord uses to bring those, to soften those hearts, to quicken them, to bring them to eternal life. But even if he doesn't, but even if they still persist in their stubborn rebellion and refuse to submit to God's gracious offer of forgiveness or faithful or our faithful witness for them will still not be in vain. It will be condemning them. It will show God is just. See, when they get to heaven, they stand before the Lord. They can't say, well, we never knew. We never knew, God, you're not fair. And God's going to point to all of us who proclaim the gospel and said, you had it right there and you rejected it. And God will be vindicated. And God will be glorified. In either case, God is glorified. And in this we rejoice. So my friends, do not fear opposition. Do not fear hostility from those who hate God and hate us. We must proclaim the truth. And we must trust in God's sovereignty and rely on his grace. And we will faithfully proclaim his truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. 
And Lord, we do ask you that you give us the grace, the grace to proclaim your truth to all we come in contact with. We pray it in Jesus' name.